Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. Want to jump right into this week's program, and I am incredibly excited to bring on Katie Pavlich, Town Hall editor, Fox News contributor, amazing political commentator, and um, my good friend, which is my favorite part about her bio. So good to see you, Lisa. And I, I hope everybody you. knows it's your birthday was yesterday, so a little belated, but happy Thank birthday you. to you. Thank you. You're so sweet. Um, it is true. Katie is as kind and sweet as she is brilliant, which just makes her just a perfect friend and a, a very professional political commentator who can absolutely talk about anything. So it was quite challenging coming up with or limiting uh, today's topics, but I really want to just get into everything. We are one week, um, just about over one week into the Biden presidency. That's in human years. In dog years, it's about seven weeks. And in executive <laughs> orders, we're about a century into his presidency. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I always joke about how working in Washington or the speed of things, one year feels like seven. So dog years. But you're absolutely right about these executive orders. I mean, Joe Biden campaigned and said that he needs Congress to push through a number of these legislative items he's going to push, push for on the far left. Uh, and they keep saying and telling him that you should just do it by executive order. And he said during a conversation with George Stephanopoulos during like a town hall style event, that only dictators do that. Well, here we are a week into the Joe Biden presidency and he has signed more executive orders than any of his predecessors, at least recent predecessors. I think President Trump signed one on his first day of office. Uh, since Joe Biden you know, went into the Oval Office for the first time, he signed almost 40 of them. Uh, and they're not just like, like things that don't really matter or just uh, symbolic executive orders. We've had a number of them that have very serious consequences for a number of people. Of course, the Keystone Pipeline, uh, uh, th that got completely shut down. That'll be, you know, 42,000 jobs in total that were just erased uh, by the stroke of a pen. You have this uh, transgender uh, males being able to play in women's sports issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the one, of course, that I would love to talk to you about is uh, the the one that the media calls a Muslim ban. Of course, it is not a Muslim ban. Uh, the context of, of repealing the travel ban is also very important because President Trump put it in place against countries that were basically failed states. So Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, because the governments there could not prove or produce any kind of real documentation right. about who was coming to the United States from those countries. So it was really a safety and national security issue of making sure that we knew who these people were when they're using false identification or no identification at all, for example. So, right. Right. you know, these are not like little things that the that Joe Biden is simply doing for symbolic reasons. They have real consequences for the country, whether it's your daughter who plays high school sports or college sports, or even uh, you know elementary school sports, or whether it's a national security issue for the country. So it's yeah. been quite the week. Absolutely, and you pretty much touched upon my first three questions. So we'll get right into it. Um, and I love that you mentioned the um, Muslim ban. We actually have an article at the Foreign Desk because it's it's completely a misnomer, as you said. It's, mm -hmm. it's not Muslim and it's not a ban. Um, we have other countries on there, North Korea, Venezuela come to mind, uh, and it's not a ban. It's as you said, we can't call the DMV in Raqqa and have anybody vetted. Um, right. We need to do our own uh, safety measures with regards to letting people in, and of course. Um, we're going to have that issue at the southern border as well. You know, yeah. um, there's another caravan on its way. 
And, um, you know, people from the uh, Biden administration days before inauguration were like, please, um, this is not the right time. Well, what happened? What happened to the message that the Biden administration was giving to these type of uh, immigrants about there being a free flow of um, migration into the United States? Well, and they've they've stopped the building of the border wall, despite the funding for the rest of the the allocated mileage for the wall and the material being ready to go. They've stopped that, which is a signal in itself that border security and stopping people at the border is not a a high priority for the Biden administration. Uh, It's interesting to see them now trying to tell these caravans that they have to wait because they need to work on getting the policy repealed. But then the question is, okay, so are you inviting them to come at a later date, are, are you are you saying that these these caravans that are full of thousands of people uh, are, are welcome to come uh, at a later date, so long as the previous administration's policy is repealed, so they do not have to wait in Mexico, uh, for example, before they enter the United States? And Lisa, I just it's just amazing to watch this as you know the Biden administration is still banning travel, commercial air travel from Europe. Yeah from Brazil, from other countries, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And yet there doesn't seem to be much concern about what a pandemic, uh, what, what the cost of a pandemic with thousands of people coming over the southern border would actually be. And if you remember, mm-hmm. like back in 2014, when this first this issue was really mm-hmm. first uh, coming up, I mean, illegal immigration is always an issue. But in 2014, under the Obama administration, there are all these photos that were coming out of these DHS centers, these border patrol centers of just tons of people packed into these places. And when you think about doing this at a time when there's this highly contagious virus and we've all been shut down and, and limited inside of our homes and unable to run our businesses for a year, and yet they're just opening the door, uh, it, it seems hypocritical at the very best, but frustrating and has so many different implications, whether it's health issues, hospital capacity, mm-hmm. national security issues. I mean, there are so many problems with this that just don't seem to be getting asked about or addressed by the administration. Right. And, you know, you, you touch upon the the broader um, issue here and it's, you know, logistics or I should say the, the, the facts uh, meeting an ideology. And, you know, mm-hmm. what, what, what will happen in your mind and from your view in Washington, D.C., when the Biden administration having campaigned not on much, but on the, the ideology that they will reverse the Trump era um, on, on, a, on a long list of items? What happens when they meet the reality on the ground in terms of immigration, in terms of the Iran deal, in terms of uh, the Abraham Accords, in terms of, you know, the, all mm-hmm. these jobs that are lost? Will ideology win over? Well, I think that is to uh, be foreseen, but but we have a clue with these executive orders. I mean, Joe Biden campaigned as a moderate, and yet these executive orders are not moderate proposals or moderate changes in the way that a lot of people uh, operate in the policies that have been implemented. So when it comes to immigration, for example, I think that they'll probably just go back to the status quo of what it was like under the Obama administration, where they allow people to come here, falsely claim asylum, and then leave inside the interior of the country and then never show up for their court date. And then, of course, there you know, you have this screaming from these illegal immigration activists that if you send ICE into these communities to get people to go to their court date, that you're somehow engaging in racist or bigoted behavior. And we can't have that. So I assume that's what they will go back to doing, uh, given that they want to invite these people in. uh, And that's been the pattern of behavior in terms of showing up for court dates. 
uh, and the influx of additional people. I mean, if you don't stop them at the border, we saw the border crossing stop because of the policies that forced people to mm-hmm. wait in Mexico. You know, the message was don't come here, you're not getting in. And therefore, you know, the coyotes and the smugglers knew that they weren't going to waste their time uh, trying to get people in. But now those are the people who are profiting the most. And that's something that the media always misses because they get so caught up in policies and and how nice things are. But I've always argued that open borders are very inhumane borders. Nobody is getting across the southern border unless they are working with a cartel or a smuggler. And smugglers do not have the best interests of these people in mind. Uh, Women go through horrific things when they are smuggled uh, from South America up through Mexico to the United States. Children are abused. If you get sick, you get left to die. I mean, the stories that you hear from Border Patrol agents about finding pregnant women walking by themselves. They were left behind by these coyotes. Um, So there's this a huge issue that has so many different complicated components. But the problem is when you enable the behavior by saying, we'll just wait until we finish the policy and we're not going to continue funding the border wall, seems like the far left ideology on this issue is winning. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of people will say, well, we're going to go back to Obama era policies. It's going to go back to the Obama kind of presidency. But mm-hmm. the thing that's troublesome is that in terms of a society, these social justice movements, the intersectionality, all of these, the, the sentiment has moved farther left. And the, the media has compounded that, of course, because they're not doing their jobs. They've completely become the echo chamber of these social justice movements and the far, far left. So I think we're in a position that we're even to the left of where the Obama administration oh, was. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think that like Nancy Pelosi or Barack Obama are considered more moderate than Correct. the left of today. Exactly and, right. And they are. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, Barack Obama, when he came basically out of retirement to c- campaign for Joe Biden, started mentioning the founding fathers. And I just thought to myself, oh, well, that's not woke enough for. Yeah, for yeah. That will trigger. <laughs> yes, that will trigger many. Very triggering. You know, we have to come up with some different language for the former president to use. No, don't even mention them. Erased. Canceled. Yeah, erased. Canceled. Not allowed to talk about it. Done. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the Keystone Pipeline. I think that's a very, very important um, issue for many, many jobs being lost. And um, they're telling us many jobs will be gained. I saw you, you tweeted about yeah. that. Um, you know, it, what's being sold to the American people who are losing their jobs? Well, you know, we saw former Secretary of State John Kerry, who still owns a private jet and a very long yacht that he likes to go around and burn fossil fuels on. Um, (laughs) He was in the White House briefing room this week talking about how Mm -hmm. people who have lost their jobs working on the Keystone Pipeline can simply just become solar panel technicians. Um, So the the thing is, is those jobs are not available right now. So instead of the government should not be doing this anyway, but instead of saying, you know, here's 20,000 jobs this new company just opened, right? So they're available to transition right away. They're just out of the jobs. Like these 42,000 people no longer have work. And the thing that bothers me the most about this whole argument is that it's being sold to the American people as for the sake of the environment, for the sake of clean energy, for green energy. Um, And they say, well, we need money for infrastructure plans. Well, the Keystone Pipeline is the definition of an infrastructure project. It's building a pipeline to take oil and gas in a clean way through a number of different states and through Canada. Now that oil is going to be transported anyway. So now instead of having a clean pipeline, a safe pipeline, this oil is going to be transported on trucks and trains that are far less uh, environmentally friendly 
than a pipeline. And so these things are being done out of ideology. They're not being done out of like real science <laughs> and right. data. And so this idea that you have John Kerry, who you know married into his wealth, who is still a hypocrite when it comes to using fossil fuels at a level that none of us do, um, lecturing and telling hardworking blue collar Americans who were had a job last week who no, no longer do because the president canceled their job, by signing a piece of paper from the Oval Office. Um, and we'll see more of this as they continue to, to ban new fracking and new drilling on federal land. Maybe they'll go beyond that. We're, you know, we're so far uh, at the beginning of this administration. But when you have John Kerry, like the elitist of the elite, the guy that like hangs out in Paris with all these elites of the world, lecturing hardworking people about how they should go about their employment and feeding their families and, and talking to them like they're stupid and that they can just go become a solar panel operator. Well, maybe they can, but that should be their choice. Uh, it shouldn't be forced right. upon them. And and it just goes back to, you know, again, to the Obama administration when they were funding Solyndra. Solyndra was a solar pa panel company. You know, they got all this taxpayer money and then they went bankrupt. Right. And so they're asking thousands of people to give up good, high-paying jobs for something that either doesn't exist or something that is not proven to be a sustainable career path. And so mm -hmm. it's just, it's such an elitist governmental style bureaucratic way of looking at things and it's detrimental to so many people. Right. And the message being, you have to think, you know, much larger than yourself and your family. I mean, you right. have to sacrifice your job because mm -hmm. of, of common of, good of the, of, of climate, because of the mm -hmm. climate change, because of global warming. I want you to take a listen to this clip. Uh, today, President Biden will build on the actions he took on day one, and he'll take more steps to fulfill uh, commitments he made to tackle the climate crisis while creating good-paying union jobs and achieving environmental justice. In his campaign, he and Vice President Harris put forward the most ambitious climate vision that any presidential ticket had ever embraced. And he spent more time campaigning on climate than we have ever seen. The president also has consistently identified the climate crisis as one of four interrelated existential crises that are gripping our nation all at once. So um, this is our crisis right now. Um, COVID <laughs> no longer, COVID's off the table. Um, mm -hmm. We're dealing with, I mean, this is what's being told to the American people. Well, it's just so interesting to watch. So over the past year with, with the COVID crisis, the Wuhan coronavirus crisis, uh, we've seen a lot of these environmentally friendly arguments completely collapse. So do you remember when they used to, the whole thing was bring your own bag to the grocery store? Right. Bring your own reusable bag to the grocery store. Well, they stopped doing that because there was so much bacteria and viruses and just gunk in those reusable bags that during a pandemic, grocery stores didn't want people bringing them into the grocery store to further spread the pandemic around, right? right. So that got erased. You also had plastic straws brought back because they wanted things to be thrown away so that you're not spreading this disease. Uh, One-use, single-use plastics were brought back. So there's a lot mm. of these like environmental arguments that were made uh, previous to the pandemic that just hit a wall of reality of what it means when it comes to dealing with an actual crisis. Now, I have to say, you know, I grew up on a dirt road. 
we had a cistern, we had to haul our own water, we had a wood burning stove, and you know, we took short showers because we hauled our own water, we lived a little bit off the grid. Like if anybody knows about how to conserve the environment, it's me. Like I grew up hunting and in the woods and not leaving a trace behind when you go camping. And I just find all these city, you know, goers in these big cities like New York, Washington, DC, and Boston lecturing the rest of the country about how to be environmentally environmentally friendly with these big government programs doesn't actually do much for the environment. And you have Chuck Schumer saying that we need to declare a national emergency about climate. Well, what does that do? Is it really about the climate or is it really about the government being able to control every aspect of your life? Because you can justify any kind of government regulation through the climate. What kind of car you can drive? What kind of food you can eat? The UN's been pushing for years with communist China that uh, the world should be eating a more vegetarian diet, moving away from meat, what you eat, uh, what kind of uh, bags you can use at the grocery store, what kind of straws you can use, how long your showers can be, what kind of light bulbs you can use, wh what kind of materials you can use to buy your house or to use your house and build your house. And so, you know, there there's arguments to be made about things that are more sustainable and things that are more environmentally friendly, but there's a very fine line between total government control of your life under the name of climate and actually helping the environment. And I think a lot of the time pollution and climate change, which used to be global warming until they had to change their language because the science wasn't adding up to the global warming argument that they were making. Uh, there's a big difference between pollution and climate and being environmentally friendly. And so, you know, I think we can all say that we don't want pollution. We all want clean air. We don't want to litter and we want to keep taking care of our environment. Um, but this idea that they now want to control every aspect of people's lives under some national emergency without the data to really prove it uh, is a, a tough pill to swallow, especially given how uh, tyrannical and invasive the government has been over the past year with restrictions for COVID. Right. And speaking of, of COVID, I mean, this is, she called it an environmental, environmental justice. Mm -hmm. um, so to give it such a platform, especially at a time, look, the, the numbers haven't dwindled. I'm here in Los Angeles and our ICUs are still packed. The numbers mm -hmm. don't really match up to this, uh, you know, about face on COVID. All of a sudden, yeah. you know, everyone's talking about opening up and everyone's talking about, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. But yet the numbers, if they want to talk numbers, if they want to talk science, don't really match up to that right now. And, you know, it makes a lot of people question, you know, this is all political. Just this morning, um, we had a breaking news about um, the uh, attorney general in New York saying that the uh, COVID uh, nursing home deaths were 50% higher than previously reported. This came out just a few hours ago. I mean, and then yeah. you have Governor Cuomo coming out and say, we can't stay, oh, we can't stay closed. I mean, right. what do we say to the American people? I mean, this is this is the people's lives, their livelihood. And now the crisis is no longer COVID. The same people who campaigned on COVID being the crisis are saying it's no longer the crisis. Right. It's no longer the it's no longer the crisis and it's politically convenient for them to to use it as not as a crisis. I mean, we keep hearing over and over again, and Joe Biden continues to say this and tweet this, that he will always follow the science. But the science on this since last May has shown that lockdowns don't work, that uh, restaurants and bars are not the source of spread for the for the virus, that gyms are not the spread for the virus, that children should go back to school. The CDC said that in July of last year. And yet all of that has been ignored by 
blue state Democrats at the, the state level, whether it's Gavin Newsom in California or in New York with Andrew Cuomo, uh, and then all in Washington, D.C. And now all of a sudden, Joe Biden is president and you have the economies of California and New York holding down the rest of the country while places like Florida and Georgia have been able to balance, you know, limiting the spread of the virus, isolating the people who are at the highest risk while also not destroying people's livelihoods and their economies by forcing them to be closed for nine months. And the timing is very suspicious because they say, follow the science. Well, we follow the science and the logic that they've been using right. for, for months. Right. They argue that cases are continuing to spike and therefore we have to stay closed. Well, cases in California are, are still spiking and they won't show people the public data. And then you have people like Andrew Cuomo, who I think is criminally liable for the decisions that he made. I mean, this idea that he covered up the fact that he pushed a bunch of, uh, of, of people into nursing homes, which were incubators of this disease, uh, and then lied about the numbers. And now we have uh, new numbers showing that he that thousands more people died as a result of that policy decision. And his response to that was to write a book, um, to joke about it on CNN with his brother, and then to accept an, an, an Emmy, Emmy and then criticize the Trump administration for the response is just so insane. You know, isn't, I mean, here in California, I'm seeing a lot of, of um, you know, independent, even left of center friends, uh, colleagues, you know, mm. question, question the leadership here, because, you know, you get to the point where, you know, left, right or center, you, you have to look at what's going on here, this political theater, we're only one week in. It wasn't even like a gradual, you know, <laughs> let's ease into this. It was basically, okay, poof, it's gone. We can reopen now. I mean, it, do you see the American people coming around on any of this? I'm not, well, it, it's interesting to see. I think we have to wait because I, I do think that the COVID situation is the reason why President Trump lost. So I think that Joe Biden's approach to it resonated with more people. Um, but when it comes to the hypocrisy and the the, the change in decision making that we're seeing now from these governors and mayors, I do think that maybe people will take a look at that and and reassess what decisions were made and kind of look back and try to learn from things in the future. You know, the language has always been the pandemic has caused Right. Millions of people to lose their jobs. Well, right. actually, the government's response to the pandemic has caused millions of people to lose their jobs. The, the government's response in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, is the reason why so many people died in nursing homes when they had other facilities to to put people. Right. And so, you know, those are results of decisions that are made by political leadership. And now they're making decisions by by their own standards. Uh, are going to lead to more spread and to more uh, death and destruction from the virus. And then, of course, you have Joe Biden who campaigned. You know, this was like his one campaign issue. Big joke was he's in the basement all the time. He doesn't want to leave. And then he comes out this week and says, well, there's nothing we can do over the next two months to stop the trajectory of the pandemic. Like, this is your job. You're the, you're the side of saying the government can fix everything. I mean, this is why you were elected. So get to work. Right. And, you know, the media obviously has so much to do with that. You and I both see that day to day. Um, and, and it's become increasingly difficult to question um, the left, question, um, you know, the leadership on the left, to question Biden, AOC, Pelosi, um, Gavin Newsom. I mean, it's it's been, you know, it, it, I think it, the, the American people are at a, at a huge disservice. 
um, from the media because they're seeing one thing and they're they're hearing something else. I mean, if you look at headlines today um, and you go back two, three, four, five years ago, they 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 all sound like op-eds and they're coming yeah. from these, you know, reputable mainstream media outlets. I mean, how will the media uh, play a role in the next four years? Do you think we're going to go or maintain this left or even go further left? Or do you think there will be a return to some sort of ethical journalism? I think with the established outlets that we have, uh, they will continue on their trajectories because they, there's just no way to save face at this point. Uh, they have their readership, like the New York Times, for example, whenever they have an op-ed that they dare to publish from a, any kind of conservative point of view, their readership tends to revolt, right? And so therefore they apologize and then they take the op-ed down. Article, and they, right? yeah, they do all that. And um, you, know, you have this big, blow up with Politico over the last two weeks where Politico Playbook, which is a very inside DC baseball, like establishment type newsletter, um, reached out to, and good for them. They reached out to prominent conservative writers like Ben Shapiro and Guy Benson and Mary Catherine Hamm and asked them to write the newsletter. So Ben was up first and he writes the newsletter and then the entire newsroom revolts against just having a different point of view. And so from one one end of it, I, I see as, well, maybe old school journalism where everybody's objective, A, never really existed in the first place. We just have more types of journalism now to expose that there was a different narrative. And because there was only a few outlets, you didn't know there was a different narrative, right? Because there wasn't a way to really get out a, another side of the story. Or I also see it as, well, maybe everybody should just be honest about where they're coming from. Like, I'm a conservative journalist. I come at these issues from a conservative point of view, gather the facts and make an assessment based on where I come from politically. And I think that if you gave a liberal journalist and a conservative journalist the same story, it would be, the headline would be different. It would Mm -hmm. be written in a tone that was different. And I think that's more honest. And at least people can consume information based on knowing where people are coming from, which I think is actually more accurate and honest with your readership. Right. But I don't know if, if cancel culture will allow for any other narrative except True. for their own <laughs> to be exposed. You know, that's, yeah. I think what's, what's scarier than anything else right now is this mm-hmm. cancel culture. And yeah. it's, it's a McCarthyism. People mm-hmm. will be fearful to lose their jobs if they come out as conservatives, if they come out as someone who even agreed with any one of the policies of the Trump administration, if you had anything to do with, um, you know, the, the right, uh, look at what they're doing with the people who attended the Capitol Hill. I mean, yeah. no one, no one uh, condoned that violence. And I mean, the the right was extremely deliberate about mm-hmm. condemning it publicly right away, <laughs> right away, um, mm-hmm. without any hesitation. Uh, but still, I mean, the 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 punitive measures that are taken out against those who are open about their conservative views is too damaging for many to accept. So mm-hmm. what will be the future of um, the, the party, young people like yourself, who conservatives who who have been really the heart and soul uh, of the GOP for the future? I mean, I've been getting protested on college campuses for quite some time now. So oh, I yeah. feel like I was like at the forefront of, of, of this it's happening. Not honor, Katie. It's not <laughs> honor. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think that we are in a, a, a scarier, uh, increasingly difficult time for free speech because you have this argument that all these big tech companies are private companies and therefore the First Amendment doesn't apply. Um, 
but I, I, I worry about big tech taking over basic constitutional principles like the First Amendment. So they exist, and, and publishing companies, Simon & Schuster, for example, mm -hmm. um, publishing companies exist because of the First Amendment and the principles that we have in this country. And yet they are increasingly violating them with journalists at the forefront saying that conservative points of view need to be stifled. And then you take it a step further and you're not talking about just like private cancellation. You're talking about this massive government law enforcement apparatus turning everything inward and looking at people like me and you and anybody who's, who's slightly right wing. It uh, doesn't matter if you support President Trump. It's just about whether you're a conservative and you don't right. give in to right. leftist orthodoxy. Um, and like people like John Brennan, who was the right. CIA director going on television and calling for a, a new domestic terrorism program to go after a whole list of people, including libertarians, because they are a threat, not to right. democracy, but a threat to leftism and democratic power in Washington, D.C. And so that, I think, is, is the most terrifying thing when you combine this idea of big technology taking over basic principles of Americanism and the First Amendment and constitutional rights combined with a government that we've seen under the Obama administration um, completely willing to use agencies like the IRS, like the FBI, like the CIA to go mm -hmm. after political opponents and to frame them. I mean, how many people have we seen who have been put in positions where their entire livelihoods are completely destroyed over false accusations that the media then jumps on because right. it's a Republican or a conservative. I mean, it really is a, a scary time. And I, I'm not sure at this point how to fix it. I mean, you know, Parler was told, you know, make your own platform if you don't like, like Twitter. Okay. And then their hosting services is, is taken away. So right. I guess the solution would be to come up with their own servers, our own hosting services, um, that kind of thing, and, and to fight back. But right. I do think that we're in a very precarious time here. Yeah, but the, I mean, to what extent? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. Yeah. In the case, in, to what extent are young conservatives or, you know, leaders of the party or others, people on college campuses? I mean, when they're canceling yeah. you and me um, for, for various reasons um, and not allowing this narrative to be heard, uh, will there just be one narrative? College campus, place where you're taught to question, to think, mm -hmm. right, to 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 speak, um, and you know, there if, if there is just one, you know, echo chamber, if there's just one narrative, are people? I don't know. Are are we going to become stronger? Or are we just going to become complacent? I think that conservatives will not be complacent. I, I think that um, we've gotten to a point where we've been able to build. Um, these wide audiences, our, our own followings. And, uh, you know, I I try to be hopeful and I go back to like the 90s, right? When there were only three news networks and a couple yeah. of national newspapers and like local newspapers, but that was like basically it. Right. If you look at the amount of media that we have now from all different kinds of perspectives, we are in a better place. I mean, people have more access to information than they ever have right. before, which is why you see uh, these these people fighting back and not wanting a number of these other voices because it does destroy uh, their narrative or at least just give another side of the story. And I used to always say on college campuses, and I haven't been there in a while because of the pandemic, but um, you know, you can't blame students, especially our young people or people maybe who aren't so politically engaged who want to be politically engaged for something they've never heard. And right. so it's our obligation to continue to go out and in whatever capacity that we can 
to give information that somebody may not have heard before. And a lot of the time when you give these talks, you know, I always encourage whatever organization that was hosting me, whether it's Young America, America's Foundation, for example, I would say, invite the, the college Democrats, invite the college socialists, have them come so we can have a conversation and a debate. They were always welcome to come. Right. And sometimes when they would show up, you know, at the end, I'd have one or two people come up to me and say, you know, I, you didn't change my mind, but I understand where you're coming from. I've never heard that perspective before, or right. you changed right. my mind. I never, I never heard or thought of it that way before. Right. And so, you know, I think being willing to have the debate, I think that Americans overall are very tolerant, open people who don't look at things in a black and white fashion. Uh, they don't like this cancel culture. They don't like the idea that they could maybe say something that someone doesn't like and their entire life is ruined. Uh, like, for example, this woman who is, I guess, asleep, a, ba a, a baby sleep expert who mm -hmm. the left like did some digging on and she donated money to Trump. And so now they're trying to destroy her business. Right. right. I don't think people really like that. And so, you know, it's a difficult uphill battle when the left has control of a lot of these major institutions, especially our communication. Right. Yes. But when I look at where we how far we've come with the narrative and being able to just present a different set of facts or a different point of view, um, I do have hope that we can get through it. It's just a matter of not giving up. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I uh, amen to that. I, I hope that that is true. And I hope that, like you said, there, there there is, you know, an arena of various opinions where people can hear and be heard and um, that the conservative or libertarian uh, voice is not drowned out by by peer pressure or, or the media or anything else. Um, yeah. It's difficult. You know, it's funny. I, I cover national security, but these mm -hmm. days, domestic security that is obviously more pressing than anything yeah. else going on in Iran or Syria or Saudi Arabia. Um, mm -hmm. But I do want to end by asking um, your opinion on, on some of, of the changes that we're seeing from the Biden administration with regards to foreign policy. Foreign yeah. policy was an issue or a, a topic, I think, where the Obama administration really, you know, changed the course of where this country was. Um, probably that is what gave birth to Make America Great Again because of the, mm -hmm. the status that we lost on the world stage. Uh, President Trump, love him or hate him, did some wonderful things uh, mm -hmm. with regards to foreign policy, pulling troops out of places where it was just dangerous and not getting to any um, set conclusion, mm -hmm. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, which was a piece of paper that was equivalent to nothing. Uh, you know, um, obviously bringing an end to ISIS, killing a lot of the bad guys. Um, mm -hmm. But more importantly than anything else, um, bringing a really innovative and long-lasting peace to the Middle East. And I know people will write to me right now, right now, mm -hmm. as we're having this conversation. Well, the, you know, there there wasn't the, any uh, war between Bahrain or the UAE. <laughs> well, this is not a peace deal. Yeah, <laughs> a peace deal. But guess what? It's even better than a peace deal. It's an yeah. economic deal. It's a mm -hmm. tourism deal. It's an apps deal. It's an iPhone deal. It is everything. And, um, you know, yeah. I, I've had so many guests come onto this program to talk about the amazing um, outcome of this uh, deal. Uh, because we're already seeing weddings in Dubai, Israeli weddings in Dubai. I mean, ultra-Orthodox, by the way. This is not just mm -hmm. some modern, you know. Um, you know this topic very well. I saw you on the lawn of the White House on the day, September 15th, where the Abraham Accords were signed, uh, where, you know, leaders from the UAE, Bahrain, came to meet with Jared Kushner and Donald Trump, uh, and really a momentous time. And I think to a certain extent it was celebrated by you know left right and center maybe begrudgingly by the left because this was such a historic and out of the yeah. box 
um, solution to something mm -hmm. that has been, you know, John Kerry said, it's, it's impossible to get Middle Easterners <laughs> without the Palestinians and the Israelis coming to the table, but yet it was done. And yep. now, as you mentioned in, uh, in the beginning of the program, we have an about face already. Already mm -hmm. we have an about face. Palestinian aid has been reinstated by the Biden mm -hmm. administration. And the reason we have a problem with that is because don't be fooled, as you know, the Palestinian aid is not going to the schools or to the hungry right. people. It's going to Hamas. It's going mm -hmm. to a pay to slay program for suicide bombers. And mm -hmm. that, that aid has been reinstated. And the uh, fighter jets that were promised to the UAE as part of the Abraham Accords, mm -hmm. uh, they have rescinded on that deal as well. Katie, just, I mean, from where you yeah. sit, I mean, what are the long lasting implications of backing out of this new configuration of the Middle East that the Trump administration set up? Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Abraham Accords and uh, when we saw each other on the South Lawn of the White House on September 15th, because two years prior to that, if I have the timeline right, I also remember us going to a meeting at the White House together where we were seeing the seeds of this new program being planted and then watching it come to fruition is just an incredible process. And, and to look right. at it from the beginning and say, well, this is totally different than anything anybody's ever done, but hey, why, do, why not try it since everything has been tried and, and nothing seems to work? And mm -hmm. I, I think it's amazing how you know people, as you were saying, will say, well, there was no war between Bahrain and all these other countries in Israel. Um, well, okay, but these peace agreements that we've had in the past, like the Oslo Accords, for example, um, they've meant nothing. In fact, they've put Israel into a, t a worse position with the Palestinians. Um, you talk about the Palestinian aid being put back into place. Well, that's not just about Israelis. I mean, the pay to slay program has resulted in Americans being killed in Israel. Uh, right. Two recently, actually. Taylor Force was one of them. Right. And so this, you know, this idea that this this doesn't affect America and it's just simply about Israel, uh, it just isn't true. But in terms of how you know, we move forward with this. Uh, the move by the Biden administration this week to freeze the uh, the the F thirty five promise through the Abraham Accords to the UAE to me is an indication of them trying to unravel uh, the the Abraham Accords. They're hoping that the UAE says, "Well, if you if the United States isn't going to give us our F thirty fives, then therefore we can't continue to be in these deals." Now, I would I, I think that they're they're better than that. I think that they've seen the economic progress just over the last six months, even right. like less right. than that. Yep. Um, and I, I'm not sure that those countries are willing to roll back all of the progress that has been made for the sake of a new uh, administration in the United States, but more importantly for the Palestinians. I mean, you know, the, the Biden administration and, and critics of the Abraham Accords and critics of the, of the Trump administration and Jared Kushner on this issue say, well, the Palestinians weren't involved. Well, the Palestinians said they weren't going to come to the table. Yes, They're the ones who walked away. Yes. So, and you know, you the best, I mean, I, and I forgot to, yeah, to you right. brought up that meeting that you and I attended at the White House mm -hmm. with a small group of, of reporters and mm -hmm. uh, Jared Kushner. And I mean, it explained that the, the Palestinians were part of the initial uh, idea right. to present this deal to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And they rejected it. They rejected it out of hand. So they were asked to come to the table. Uh, they were given all these opportunities to be in these business deals with Bahrain and with the UAE and with other countries, and they refused because they, and they weren't even offering their own um, solution, by the way. They just said, we're not going to negotiate. So when the left criticizes the Abraham Accords as 
only Israeli U.S. deal. That's just not true. I mean, Israel's made deals with Bahrain. They've, you know, I had a friend who was in in Dubai recently, and she said there were more people speaking Hebrew at the airport than there were speaking Arabic. Maybe. I mean, so I mean, so I, I I find it hard to believe that these countries would roll back their relationship with Israel now on behalf of the Palestinians who have only caused them trouble over the past right. however long. I mean, they're at a point where they're saying we've given you money, we've given you aid. Right. And all we hear about are complaints and you're not willing to come to the table. I mean, that's a very simplified version of it, but that's the truth. I mean, Israel didn't get a deal with the UAE uh, in spite of the Palestinians uh, or because of the Palestinians. They did it because the UAE and other countries are, are tired of dealing with this issue. They're tired right. of hating each other. There's a whole different generation uh, in the Middle East. And I, I think if, if the Saudi king were not around anymore, I think that MBS would have gone through with a deal as well. Um, there's a whole new generation who does not want the fighting. They don't want to hate each other. They've opened this whole new world up about right. you know who people are. They don't believe the old tropes about Israel causing all their problems anymore. In fact, they see Israel as as a country that can help them in technology and in the medical field. And, and quite frankly, the biggest thing that we haven't even talked about is the Iran issue, right? So exactly, um, right. you know, you get out of the business side, you get to the the security side of things. Right. But it's a whole package. And so, um, in terms of the future, um, I. I, I think that the Abraham Accords were set up in a way where it's going to be very difficult for the countries that have already agreed to it to back out for the sake of their own yes. situation. But how will, I mean, and I, you, you, you really segued right beautifully into my final question, which is, I, I agree with you completely. I think that there's a new generation in the Middle East that's modern. Yeah. And they, they wanted to sidestep the Palestinian issue and say, you know what? They want to be stuck in the, you know, the biblical times about their, their quarrels. Let them right. do so, but we're going to move on. And we have more in common with the modern Israeli state than we do with that sort of uh, thinking. So we're going to move mm -hmm. forward. Now, how will this change the calculus of the Biden White House when they want to step right back into an Iran deal? We're no longer in the Obama times um, where you can really sidestep uh, the realities on the ground. You're going to be met with a lot of opposition in the Arab world to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. The Iran, the issue with the, with the Biden administration wanting to go right back into the Iran deal and then Iran coming out in the first week of the new administration and putting the President Biden on a timeline, like saying, you know, you only have so long to rejoin uh, as trying to use yeah, that. So as, it's as a big leverage. message when our enemies are calling the shots in the first week of a president. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a good sign. And you know, the other thing, too, that's developed over the last couple of years, and, and especially last year, is this relationship between China and Iran. And so if you're going to, you know, coddle Iran, ultimately you're 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 dealing with a, a very closely aligned Middle Eastern partner with the Chinese Communist Party. So it's a bigger issue than just simply Iran versus the rest of, of the Middle East. But from a security perspective, I was listening to the White House press secretary this week, and her, you know, she's going back to this old talking point of President Biden believes in a two-state solution for the Palestinians and the Israelis, and we believe in, right. in preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, and therefore that's why we want to rejoin the deal. When we all know that the Iran deal didn't prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, um, you know, we had the <laughs> that amazing press conference that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, did a couple years ago, where he came out and, and 
opened the curtain to all these binders full of information and CDs right. all about the nuclear program that they said just didn't exist. Right. Uh, I mean, it's been totally exposed. And so I think it just is a matter of the kind of people that, that are aligned with the left on this issue. Uh, ben Rhodes, for example, of course, um, you have uh, certain people that Biden has put on the NSC who are very closely tied to Iran, have Iranian interests, uh, and, and a lot of people on Capitol Hill as well who want to get back into the deal. So we'll see how that, that shakes out. Um, but I, I do think that the alliances that have been made, both in business-wise and in terms of security over the past uh, couple of months, really, <laughs> recently, that last year, although all the work took place before then, um, will hopefully solidify a national security, you know, wall against any kind of yes. awful, or at least, you know, the worst case scenario in terms of getting back into the Iran deal. Yeah, we hope that they're paying attention to the facts and not just going back to the Obama handbook on this one. Yeah. Uh, Katie Pavlich, you are brilliant. You are kind to give us your time. And we thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Follow her yes. on social media, on Facebook, <laughs> on Twitter, Town Hall, Fox News. You are wonderful. And we hope to talk to you very, very soon. Thanks for coming on with us. Thank you, Lisa. So good to see you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for being here. And for those of you who'd like to sign up for our uh, podcast on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10 newsletter, go to foreign desk news.com slash newsletter and we will see you next time.